Father, we start by confessing our own great need. If there is any spiritual good to happen at all this morning, it will because it will be because you you do it. Lord, if blind eyes are opened to see, it will be because you open eyes. If deaf ears hear, it will be because you open deaf ears. If cold hearts are warmed at all, it is because you do it. Lord, it is your work and your work alone that can change us. And so, Lord, before even attempting to study your word, we call upon you for help. Oh, Lord, we are lost without you. We are so needy right now. We are in danger of hearing another sermon about your son, Jesus and being unchanged. And so, Lord, please have mercy on us. Help us to see. Help us to understand. And then, Lord, motivate us toward obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open up in your copy of the Bible uh, to Mark chapter 9. We're working through the Gospel of Mark, the shortest gospel in the Bible. We're making our way through it, and we're now in Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 29. The life of the, the Christian is a life of faith. If you have called yourself a Christian, you have embarked on a life of faith, a life of trust, a life of reliance upon something outside of yourself. You have chosen not to trust yourself, to look away from yourself, and to look to someone else, namely God, to do what you cannot do for yourself. Uh, You, as a Christian, are trusting that Jesus will save you. You are trusting that Jesus can strengthen you, that He can empower you, that He can enable you, that He can, and He alone, is the one who can bring you safely home to glory. In other words, the entirety of the Christian life, you are looking outside of yourself, not within, to accomplish what God has for you. It is a life of looking to Jesus for strength and looking to Him to trust Him and His power in your life and His grace in your life and His mercy in your life for all things. Uh, The more we become then self-reliant on our own wisdom, on our own power, on our own technique, on our own methods, the further we move away from the actual power for the Christian life, which is Jesus himself. So self-reliance is uh, central to the American dream. But if we embrace a self-reliant walk through the Christian life, it'll be like cancer. It will destroy us slowly. The Christian life is not one of self-reliance, but of Christ-reliance. We walk by faith. We live by faith. We serve by faith all in what Jesus has done, what He's promised to do. We are always looking to Him. So there is power for the Christian life, but it's not from within. There is power for the Christian life, but it's not from you. It is always, we are always as Christians, looking outside of ourselves. The power to be saved is God's, not ours. It comes from the outside. If you want to grow, the power to grow comes from the outside, not from within. If you want to see others grow, if you want to have any influence that matters in the lives of other people outside of yourself, 
The power to do that comes from the outside, not from within. In other words, in every aspect of our life, in every stage of our life, whether we're new Christians or old Christians, whether we've been walking with the Lord for a very short amount of time or for a long period of time, no matter how old or young we are in the faith, the power is always God's. And God is the one and the one alone who does work through us to accomplish His will, but we don't have any inherent power to do what God has called us to do. We live by faith in Him. We live in reliance upon Him to be providing for us the things that we need. So, one way to measure your faith, to evaluate it, a sure way to get a look on the reality of your faith, an indisputable, irrefutable test of your faith is this. How do you pray? Because if everything comes from the outside, if salvation comes from the outside, if power to change comes from the outside, if power to help and serve others in any significant way comes from the outside, then we must always be looking to that power source that is on the outside to do what we cannot ourselves do. Therefore, we become a praying people. And so if you want a measure of the actual trust that you have in God, the actual faith, you will evaluate your prayer life. It is a test of your belief, a test of your faith to see, well, how do you pray? Do you pray at all? What is your prayer life like? Prayerlessness, then, is a symptom of unbelief. The lack of prayer in your life is a demonstration or an expression that there may not be much faith at all. It is to be self-reliant. It is to be depending on your own resources and to recognize that, or to think, I should say, to buy the lie that I am strong enough in and of myself to do what God has required me to do. I am strong enough in and of myself to make lasting significant impact on people around me, as God has called me to do. It is even to declare independence from God. To be prayerless is to crawl into that box of your own self-reliance, to act as if that you have within yourself everything needed to live the life God calls for you. Faith is demonstrated and expressed ultimately in the way you pray. And the lack of faith or unbelief is demonstrated first and foremost in prayerlessness. So, we ask ourselves, how's our prayer life? Do you pray? How do you pray? When do you pray? What do you pray for? How often do you look to God? Do you ask Him for your needs? Or do you operate out of this assumption that you actually have it already within you? You just need to access the strength. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Do you pray? Do you bring your requests to God when no one else is looking? When no one else is paying attention? Do you bring your questions to Him? Your problems to Him? Do you ask Him to empower you for obedience? 
Or are you trying to do this whole thing on your own? Sometimes if we're honest, we have to admit there's so much of the Christian life we're just trying to do on our own. So if you want a sure evaluation of your own walk with the Lord, evaluate the way you pray. And let's apply that to us corporately. If we want an evaluation of our church, what should we evaluate? How do we pray as a church? If you want to evaluate a church, ask it, does it pray? How does that church pray? Does that church depend upon the Lord really? Is it really looking to God to do its work there? Or is it really dependent on human methods? Is that church really built on human innovation? Is that the reason that church grows? Or is the church a praying church? Does it pray in its corporate service, unapologetically bringing its requests to God? Do the members of the church pray prior to the service and then after the service to ask the Lord to have the resources to do what God has required of us in His Word? Do they have any kind of service where prayer is normal, central even? Does the church pray? I think you can evaluate a lot about a church about by by looking at whether or not the church prays. We want to talk about the subject of prayer this morning because we want to talk about faith. And you can't really talk about these two things unless we understand them both together. And in our text this morning, we find that the disciples are in a really hard, difficult situation. They've run up against their own helplessness. They have... Uh, exhausted their own resources. They do not know what to do. And Jesus teaches them a lesson about unbelief and prayer. And he links these things together. And by studying this, I think it will encourage us, hopefully motivate us to be people who pray, to understand the centrality of prayer in the life and ministry of the Christian. And so here we are, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. You've got your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 14 to 29. Let me just remind you of the context. In chapter 8, Peter uh, came to the conclusion, understanding all that Jesus has done, that that Jesus is the Christ, He's the Messiah, remember? The divine Son of God, that's clear in their mind. And then Jesus begins telling them, but I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. This is what Jesus begins to teach the disciples. The disciples can't fathom this. They don't understand it. They don't know what to do. Uh, they, they can't imagine that the Messiah would suffer. So Peter, you know, rebukes Jesus. We get that whole scene. And then Jesus ratchets it up, and he starts telling them, oh, well, actually, if you want to follow me at all, you want to be my disciple, then deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. In other words, I'm going to suffer and die on a cross, and if you want to follow me, you take up your own cross too, and you, you follow along, and you get prepared to suffer. Now, the disciples are so brought low by this and so and so discouraged by this that Jesus wants to encourage them. He takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain of transfiguration. Remember this? And there, Jesus reveals his glory to these three men so they might see that even though he's going to suffer, he's not, that it's not a denial that he's still divine. That's not a denial that he's the Messiah. He still will accomplish his purposes even though he will suffer. He will rise. And so that's meant to, to remind them of the true identity of 
Christ, of the Messiah, they come down from the mountain. They have this conversation about Elijah and the timing of Elijah's coming. We talked about that last week. And so here they are coming down the mountain. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down the mountain, and they leave what is really a display of glory up on the mountaintop. We talk about the mountaintop experience. Well, that was the ultimate mountaintop experience. They come down the mountain, and they come into this, this argument, this confusion. Uh, they come right into this festering crowd of people who are faithless, unbelieving, arguing, demonic activity, and we see uh, an incredible lesson for all of Christ's disciples, for them there at the moment when it happened, and even for us this morning. So I'm going to read, and you follow along with me, verses 14 to 29. It's an amazing and dramatic telling of of a moment in Christ's life. Verse 14, And when they came to the disciples... That's Peter, James, and John coming down. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And and he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, And convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer see the connection between unbelief and prayerlessness. We'll unpack that further as we get going. But as we look at the text, I'm going to point out some things, four things here. We're going to see four elements. Uh, One, human powerlessness. We're going to see two, demonic possession. Three, we're going to see Christ's pity. Four, we're going to see honest faith. And we're going to conclude with a lesson for us all. 
a lesson for us all. Let's begin by looking at human powerlessness. The situation in verse 14 begins this way with them coming down the mountain. They had just seen the glory of Christ. They had just seen His resplendent divinity shining forth. And they come down, I'm sure, on some sort of spiritual high. Peter, James, and John had seen something that none of the rest of them had seen. They're told to stay silent. We talked about that last week. And they're on their way down. And they come not to this serene scene where the disciples are are teaching and, and everyone's sitting listening. No, no, no. It's not it at all. They come down, and it says right there, the first thing that's described, it says they saw a great crowd. This crowd has been really dogging Jesus wherever he goes. Wherever Jesus is, this crowd is following him. And so there's this great crowd around him, and it says the scribes are there. Remember the scribes? These were ones sent up from Jerusalem. They, they don't like Jesus. Jesus is basically turning upside down the whole religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. So these Pharisees have basically been dis- dispatched by the religious leaders to go discredit Jesus wherever he goes. So here they are. They're probably up in the northern part, even past Galilee. So if they were sent from Jerusalem, that would have been a long journey, which means these scribes really were working hard to do anything they could to discredit Jesus. They've come all the way up there, and it says that the scribes there are are they're arguing with the disciples. They're arguing with the disciples. Uh, we don't get right away what the argument's about, but I think we can make an educated guess when we see what happens next. It says that as they're coming down the mountain, verse 15, that when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Uh, that word greatly amazed is a strong word. It's actually a word that's so strong, some commentators don't know what to do with it. And some have said in, in old and older commentaries that the reason that they were so amazed was that as Jesus came down the mountain, he was still shining. He, his glory was still showing, and the crowd was in awe of him as he came down. There's actually nothing in the text that would suggest that. I think there's a more obvious solution, is that the disciples are at their wit's end. They are, have not been able to do anything uh, to the son that has the demon And what has begun to happen is that the scribes have begun to accuse the disciples of being powerless, of being unable to do anything about this, which I think the scribes were absolutely eating up. Ooh, an opportunity to discredit Jesus. Here the disciples, they can't do anything. Look, this this Messiah you are talking about, he can't even deal with this demon. They're, They're arguing. He comes down, and I like this. They're, they run up to him. Jesus appears right at the climax of this argument, I think. He appears with Peter, James, and John with him. And it says there in verse 16, he shows up, and now he has the floor. Everyone's looking at him. It says, he says, what are you arguing about with them? <laughs> I, I think this is like, you know, your two kids are fighting over a toy in the room. And, and you walk in, and you go, what are you guys talking about? And they both go silent because no one says anything. Like the, the scribes don't say anything. The disciples don't say anything. And then there's this father who finally speaks up. It's like both the scribes and the Pharisees, or scribes and the uh, disciples are not quite sure how to answer this question. What are you arguing about, huh? And that they're silent. And then I think the, the, the answer comes here. Verse 17, someone from the crowd, this unnamed man, uh, answers Jesus Uh, He says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. 
You say, why were they arguing? Well, that's why. Because the disciples are trying to defend the reality of their, their rabbi, their, their, their Jesus, who they now know to be the true Messiah. Uh, they're trying to defend him, and yet here they are utterly powerless to do any miracle in his name. And so the scribes are all over that one, pointing them out, discrediting them. Your belief is a sham. He can't be the Messiah. There's no way he's legit. If you guys profess to have this king who is God in the flesh, and you profess to have this power, and here's a demon, and here's a poor kid suffering, and you can't do anything about it? I think that the, the, the scribes are just jumping all over this opportunity to discredit Jesus, to discredit the disciples, to discredit what they've been teaching. It's as if they're here to say, look, it's all fraud. Look, look, you claim to have this power. You claim that your, your, your Messiah is, is God, and, and he can't even deal with this demon. You can't do anything about this. See, that poor father, I brought my son to you. They can't do anything about it. Now, it's interesting. Have the disciples been able to cast out demons in the past? The answer is yes. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I'm going to send you out. You're going to have authority. You're going to go preach the gospel of repentance. You're going to have authority to cast out demons. This is chapter 6, verse 7. This has already happened. And what happened? They went out, and they did just that. They went out, and they cast out demons. They preached repentance. And it was an amazing opportunity for these disciples to be used by God to bring about the and demonstrate the power of God to the people they went to preach to. And they demonstrated the power, demonstrated the power over demons. And now here they are. Jesus has been absent. He's been up the mountain. They're on their own and they're trying to cast out a demon. And they're sitting there looking stupid in front of these scribes who don't like them and want to discredit them. They're sitting there with utter powerlessness and they become the object of ridicule for these scribes. Uh, the scribes are all over that one. I, I think there's a lesson to be learned here. The, the, the f- disciples who, in their past, had been extremely effective, let's say, in their ministry in the past, effective to cast out demons, and effective to preach the repentance, are now utterly helpless. No power at all. What's going on here? What's going on here? I think one of the greatest threats to spiritual growth, to growth and maturity in an individual and even in a church, is that we are looking to the past. And we look back and we see the successes we've had, the ways we've made it through. And in evaluating how we've gotten through the past, we begin to become pretty self confident this is a true this is true in in life in general not even in just spiritually speaking past success can often be an obstacle for future growth right i've done so well there i don't need to stretch myself anymore i don't need to keep growing i'm pretty comfortable i can coast now i've learned that lesson i've got it i'm good And I wonder if the disciples, they were thinking, "Ah, we've cast out demons before. We've done this. We went out and all the demons were subject to our command. And we'd tell them to leave. And they would leave. And here's this guy. He's got his son. And he's got a demon. And we can do this just like we did all these other demons. And they began commanding this demon to come out. Come on out, demon. And the demon doesn't do anything. Uh, 
Be gone, demon! Demon still doesn't act, doesn't go anywhere. Maybe they can switch up the words and say it a little bit different this time. Nothing's working. Demons can't cast it out. They began to coast. In other words, they, because of their success in the past, because of their fruitfulness in the past, have begun to grow into self-reliant disciples, depending on their previous success. And now they are not any longer dependent on the Lord's power because they have become convinced that they can do it on their own. You think that ever happens to a Christian? Has it ever happened to you? The parent who has his kids under control, they're very obedient. I don't need to pray anymore. My, I become relaxed. I'm not bringing them to God. The preacher who has preached so many times no longer needs to depend on prayer. I could just depend on my past experience. I could depend on my natural ability. The counselor who wants to do spiritual good to others, he's met or she's met with so many different people, with so many different problems. You're not looking to God to give you what you need. You're just kind of operating out of your history and out of your experience. You know what to do. You've seen this a million times. I'll just jump in and fix the problem. Uh, Those of us going to work, Day to day, throughout the week, just doing our jobs. Not asking the Lord for help. Not asking the Lord for wisdom. We've done it a million times. We don't need God's help. We don't need God's resources. I got it in and of myself. I can kind of coast. I can evangelize and I don't really need God's help. I can disciple people and I don't really need God's resources. We just kind of start doing it. I think it's easy for us to laugh at these disciples. You tried to cast out a demon without praying? <laughs> Come on. And yet, how often are we trying to do spiritual good to serve the Lord, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, to honor Him and to do good to others and to influence either our children or our friends or our parents or our neighbors? We want to do spiritual good. We want to walk in obedience. And we're trying to do it with our own resources. We're not even praying. We're not even asking God for help. The disciples had gotten to the point where they're trying to do spiritual, they're trying to wage spiritual war with human weapons. And they're not getting anywhere. And what a great lesson for them, isn't it? And what a great lesson for us when we fail to do what we want to do because we've tried to do it in our own strength. That is what is happening here. You see, I like what has been said. I think it was Paul David Tripp who said this in the past. He says, our greatest problem is not our weakness, but the illusions that we're strong. Isn't that true? That we think we can do these things just in and of ourselves? And so we're not looking to God. We're not looking to help for His help. How many of us are trying to bear fruit without praying, trying to parent without praying, trying to do our day-to-day work without praying, trying to face spiritual problems, and we are not praying. We're trying to beat our sin to kill and conquer temptation, and we're not even praying. We're just trying to face the whole world in our own strength. And here is Jesus demonstrating to the disciples what he will say explicitly in John 15, 
What does he say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not a thing. There's a whole lot of nothing we go about doing when we do it without prayer. And here is a reminder of the powerlessness of the human being apart from God. We can do a whole lot of things in one, in one you know, human perspective, but nothing of any spiritual lasting value without the power of God. So let's look at what the problem is that they were facing. They were facing, number two, uh, they were facing demonic possession. Verse 17 says that the father had the son, it was a spirit. The, the spirit that it had inhabited him, a spirit that made him mute, so he couldn't talk. Verse 25 says that there was a deaf and mute spirit, mute and deaf. So he, this, this demon had so inhabited the poor kid that he could not hear, and he therefore also could not speak. Uh, the spirit was destructive. Uh, look at verse 18. What did it do to him? It inhabited him, and it says, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. We uh, sophisticated people often forget about demons. We have no space in our thinking for demons. We are materialists often, and so we don't think about the reality of demons. But friends, they are real. Uh, they are real. They didn't only exist in Bible times. I think they may have changed their strategy for modern, sophisticated, materialist Americans, but they are nevertheless present, and they are angry, and they are aggressive, and they are violent, and we see that all here. Look at what they're doing. I mean, the, the NASB describes that word. ESV says it throws him down. The NASB says slams him. Uh, the idea is that it's beating him up. This is a demon that is aggressive, abusive, and violent. You remember the demoniac in, in Mark chapter 5, this, this man who had been inhabited by demons upon demons. That demon would screech throughout the night, crying out, shrieking, that, that demon would cause this man to cut himself, self-mutilation. Uh, he, he lived among the tombs, and we see some of that here. The demon that has inhabited this boy has been trying to destroy him. That's what it says there later, that it has been tossing him into the flames and into the water to try to kill him. Uh, Luke includes the detail that when the demon would seize him, the boy would shriek. The boy would cry out. And it says that the, the demon would begin to shatter him is the word that Luke uses. It's this idea that this demon inhabits the body for the express purpose of beating him up, shattering his body, uh, throwing him to the ground. It says that, uh, that he would foam and grind his teeth and become rigid. And there's uh, reading of what people said about this condition is that a lot of the uh, obviously, the throwing down and the slamming to the ground would have been the activity of the demon, but it's possible that, that some of this foaming, uh, some of this other stuff that's going on would have been trauma to the brain. That this br poor kid's body is being so abused that it is responding physically to being beaten up. He's going through seizures. Uh, I, I read, last I read, that uh, the NFL uh, will make you sit out the rest of the season if you have more than three concussions. And uh, it just makes you wonder what kind of thrashing and bludgeoning this poor kid had to endure, that his head being slammed against the ground, being seized up and rigid, he's being beaten up by this demon, how many concussions this poor kid faced, how, how much of a beating his head took as 
as this demon just has his way with this poor kid, slamming him to the ground, contorting and twisting his body, making it rigid. This poor kid is being beaten up. Verse 22, it says that it often casts him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Uh, if, if you wanted to heat anything in those days, you would have had a fire. You would have an open fire. You heat your house. You heat, you heat up the food. You don't have the microwave. Uh, you don't have anything like that. You're, you have a fire. And so uh, this boy was in danger of being tossed into a fire, which means that he would have harrowing burns, that he would have had burns, second, third-degree burns, the demon, obviously, if the demon's got control of him, it would throw him in the fire and probably try to keep him there until the father or someone else would save him. It's a horrible existence. Water, it would try to drown him. Uh, of course, wells were the ways you could get water. The demon would try to toss him into a well or drown him in a river or drown him in a pool. This would be a horrible existence for the boy who could not talk, who could not hear. The demon is just just trying to torture this kid. Put yourself in the father's shoes. This is my son. I can't do anything about this. I mean, you get, you see how sad the story is. It's hard for a father to imagine his child being abused. To even process that someone would threaten one of my children just makes, I think, a godly anger kind of rise up in the heart of a father who has been given the responsibility to protect his children. If a a man threatened my children or was being abusive to my children, I would do everything in my power to put an end to the abuse. But what if it's a demon? What if it's a power that I can't see, that I can't understand, that I can't manage? The, the father is, is living under the reality. I, I wonder if there's guilt that he feels, if there's shame that he feels. He's certainly helpless. He's not able to do what a father should do for his kid. He is utterly helpless. His poor defenseless, defenseless boy is being bit up, beat up by a demon he cannot see and cannot control. His son is the victim of a demon's bloodlust, and he can't do anything about it. And that's not to mention the kind of life this father would have had to lead. Constant attention. He couldn't leave his son for a split second, lest he be thrown into a fire, cast to the ground, thrown into a well. This was a horror for this man. Do you see the kind of desperation he would have felt? And he rushes up to these disciples. Oh, these are the disciples of Jesus. I've heard about him. I've heard about that man. He can cast out demons. I've heard the stories. I got my son, and he's bringing his son. And he shows his son to the disciples, and he says, Can you heal my son? And they try, and nothing's working. It's not working. He's so desperate. But now Christ comes down the mountain. He hears what's going on. The the father says, hey, this is what's happening. I I don't mind telling you what's going on. I brought him my son. They couldn't do anything about it. He's here. In Jesus, verse 19. And here's where we see our third point. We're going to see Christ's pity. Verse 19. He answered them, oh, faithless generation. Really, everyone's faithless here, except maybe the father. 
The scribes, obviously, they're faithless. The disciples, they're faithless. The Father is the only one that's showing a shred of faith. We'll talk about that in a moment. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? This is a kind of holy exasperation. How long am I to bear with you? Even the question how long indicates there's an end coming to this, that there will come a day that all unbelief is shattered. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses Jesus is Lord, but until the very end, Jesus bears with the faithlessness. Here he's bearing with this faithless generation. And he says to the Father, bring him to me. Bring him to me. Verse 20. They brought the boy to them, to him. The they there may indicate it. It does indicate it's a plural. It took more than one guy to get him there. So they're dragging the boy over to Jesus. As the boy is being taken to Jesus, verse 20, it gives one final attack. It convulses the boy. He falls to the ground. He's rolling about. He's foaming at the mouth. The demon is coming face to face with his maker. The demon is coming face to face with a power that is stronger than him, and he knows it. He starts trying one last attempt, I think, to hurt this kid, to beat him up, to maybe kill him. He's rolling around. He's foaming at the mouth, and Jesus Jesus does something a little bit off, a little bit strange. Look at verse 21. He asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? I don't know how the father reacts. We don't, we don't, he, he, the father does end up a- answering the question, but I wonder if he, the father's also thinking, get to it, Jesus. Come on. Look, he's rolling around on the ground. Do something about his suffering. Put an end to this. And Jesus said, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, from childhood. Let that sink in. From childhood. He's a little boy. It's a toddler. The, the, the word could be you know, any age up to around seven. So, so the, the boy at this point is older than seven, but the, the father saying this is, has been happening since he's a little boy. It's a little, little guy. This demon started attacking him when he was just a little boy. Just a little, little kid. It's about as sad a story as it gets. I just want to pause here and, and just reflect on what this means for us as parents. Parents, are there spiritual battles in your household with your little children? The answer is yes. Yes, there are. Are we fighting those battles for the sake of our kids? J.C. Ryle comments very powerfully on this section. Listen to what he says, and, and take this to heart, especially if you have children that you're caring for in your life. He says, there's a lesson of deep importance here which we must not overlook. We must labor to do good to our children even from their earliest years. If Satan begins so early to do them harm, we must not be behind him in diligence to lead them to God. It is never too soon to strive and pray for the salvation of the souls of our children. Never too soon to speak to them as moral beings and tell them of God and Christ and right and wrong the devil we may be quite sure loses no time in endeavoring to influence the minds of young people he begins with them even 
from childhood. Let us work hard to counteract him. If young hearts can be filled by Satan, they can also be filled with the Spirit of God. Let's believe that and take to heart our responsibility to care for our children even from childhood, to get in the spiritual battle against the forces of darkness that hate our children. So this is the demon. This is what's going on. And now we're going to see honest faith. Honest faith. Verse 22 is describing it, what happens. If you can have compassion, do something. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for him who believes. I think it's, it's interesting that when we look at what the, the Father has said, uh, he, he says, If you can do anything, have compassion on this. If you can do anything. Does that sound like rock-solid, confident faith? If you can do anything. If you can. There's a big if there at the front of it. If you can do anything, please have compassion on us. It, it's not very confident. It's, it's not very solid faith. And that's why Jesus kind of picks up on those three words, if you can. He responds by saying, if you can? If you can't, really? It's, it's as if he's trying to help them come to understand who he is. Do you know who I am? If, if you knew my power, you would not say, if you can. You would know that, of course, I can. And then he goes on to say, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, don't get Jesus wrong here. This is not saying that if you just believe enough, every, re- every prayer request you ever ask is going to come true. You know, just believe hard enough, and it's all going to happen. No, what he's saying, I think Jesus is trying to help us eliminate impossible from our prayer lives. He's trying to help us understand that when we are coming to God by faith, God is omnipotent. All things are possible for him. And so we don't come to God asking, I hope he can. I hope he's able. We come knowing he can. He can do this. He can save that person I've never thought would ever be saved. He can. He can change that heart. He can help me overcome this issue. We don't come asking, if you can, God. We come knowing it is possible. It is possible. that This is in the realm of possibility. For us who believe, we come to a God who is able to do all we ask abundantly, exceedingly beyond what we could ever imagine. That's the God we come to. We don't come expecting Him to do everything according to our whim. That's not what this is saying. This has come with confidence that what we are bringing to Him is possible for Him. All things are possible with God. That is what He is teaching us. And so, if we have faith, we come with optimism, right? We come with optimism that the God of all possibilities can do the things we are asking of Him. We don't come as pessimists. We don't come doubting the power of God to do the things we're asking. We say, you can. It's all possible for you. And for us who believe, it is possible that you do the things we're asking of you. I love what happens here. Look at verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. This is a cry out, emotional The word connotates a a kind of emotional crying out. And it says, and he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
That is honest. That's real. I think we need to learn to pray like that. Because I think that prayer encapsulates so much of the Christian life. Do we believe? Yes, we, we do. We, we believe that Jesus is God sent from heaven to live a perfect life, to die in our place, to rise from the dead. That God has made promises to His people that He will provide for us, that He does hear our prayers. All of these things we believe. And yet, if you're honest, don't you sometimes struggle with unbelief? Don't the doubts creep in? You're struggling with a sin and you go, man, I just don't know if I'll ever overcome this. You're struggling with believing that someone can be saved and you just go, yeah, it'll probably never happen. You just have these doubts. Maybe God's not hearing any of my prayers. Maybe there's no point to any of the suffering. We, we have these thoughts from time to time. And the, pr- the, the way to pray is not to just, just sweep them under the rug and act as if they don't exist. The way to pray is to bring those doubts to Jesus and to say like this man, I, I do believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And I love that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. You don't believe? You, there's, there's unbelief in your heart? Well, I'm going to stand back and wait till you believe me fully before I do anything to help your boy. No. He doesn't say, purify yourself first, confess all your sins, get rid of all your doubts, then you may come to me, and I will give you the deliverance you need. No. Doesn't say that. The man is saying, I, I do believe, but I'm so unfaithful at times. I cannot even muster up the spiritual fortitude to believe the way I ought to believe. So even help me in that. I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. And when you come to Jesus that way with humility and honesty, I think that is the way that Jesus wants us to come to Him. Not to try to pose as something we aren't, but to come giving Him our doubts, giving, us our, giving Him our, our fears, bringing to Him even our own unbelief, and saying, help me. And what does Jesus do? He helps him. Look at what he says, verse 25. A crowd starts running together to see what he's going to do. It says, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. This is a, a final solution to this problem that has been plaguing this poor kid all his life. Leave him and never come back again. You will not be haunted by this demon anymore. Jesus responds to the demon and to the request with, you are now gone, demon. You will not come back anymore. He answers the prayer of the Father. What's interesting is you got a few details in verse 26. The demon cries out, convulses him one last time, and then it comes out and the boy's left there dead like a, or looking dead like a corpse. Most of the people in the crowd think he is dead. They say so. Verse 27, then Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. What's interesting is at that point we don't have anything about the response of the crowd. We don't have anything about the response of the father. We don't have anything about the response of the scribes. What we move to next is this inner dialogue with Jesus and the disciples, which alerts us to the point of the whole scenario here. Look at verse 28. And he had entered the house, and the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? 
Why not, Jesus? We were trying. We were doing it just like we did back in Mark 6. Trying it. It was working then. Why isn't it working now? In verse 29, he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There is a poignant lesson for every Christian here this morning. There's a very pointed lesson for the church, for us, this morning. Let me just tell you what's happening. Paint the picture real quick. The disciples are trying to deal with a spiritual power bigger than them in their own strength. What does it do? What does it re- that result in? It results in a few things. One, it results in the scribes mocking them. It results in the scribes feeling, feeling affirmed in their unbelief. It, re- it results in the message of Jesus being discredited so that the scribes feel validated in denying Jesus. The second thing it does, I believe that it results in the Father who initially came trusting that Jesus could save his boy, beginning to doubt. You catch that? The father must have come with his son thinking that Jesus could do something about this, but the failure of the disciples to do anything about it caused this father to begin to doubt. That's why he goes, if you can. It's like they've all failed. Maybe you can, but I don't know. In other words... There is a principle here that's incredibly important for us that when disciples of Jesus, then and now, today, when there are disciples of Jesus who try to do God's work without God's power, they result in embarrassment in the eyes of the world. It it makes a mockery of the gospel we preach. It is a grotesque and hideous thing when a church tries to imitate the power of God with man-made mechanisms. It is a horrible thing when the church tries to do God's work without God's power, and so they manipulate and they coerce and they try to man-make these contraptions that can end up imitating the real deal. They're not bearing any real fruit, so they've got to manufacture it for themselves. And what ends up happening is we become an embarrassment We become a shame. We become a tragedy. We are not only a neutral uh, reality in the community, we become a negative because people look at the church and they laugh because clearly it's not the power of God on display there. You see what I'm saying? When disciples of Jesus try to do God's work in their own strength, they end up crashing and burning or worse They end up trying to manipulate the outcome so it looks as if there's fruit when in reality all that is happening is they are creating hypocrites, frauds, fakers, people who think they know the truth but it is not legitimate. Imagine, church, after experiencing so much blessing, so much encouragement, so much of God's work among us, that we begin to settle in, looking at the past and admiring what God has done, and now we begin to coast. God has acted so kindly to us. We've seen Him answer prayers. What amazing things God has done here in the last few years. 
In fact, I have a journal that I keep, and it's a digital journal, and it'll tell you, you know, on this day three years ago, and one came up uh, just recently. Three years ago on Easter Sunday, and I looked at my phone, and I read the little, uh, little entry that I had put there. And I read it said something along the lines of, Easter Sunday, our biggest Sunday ever. We had 42 people there. I said, wow, Lord, thank you so much. And I remember, it brought me back to those days. And some of you were there in those days. And, and we were just begging the Lord, Lord, do your work here. You know, bring people to know the truth and bring people to have, experience a healthy church. And, and Lord, do a mighty work here. I remember just not knowing, like, what, what if it fails? Lord, please, Lord, work among us. Bring real fruit to bear here. And God has answered our prayers in some incredible ways. Man, we could sit around and tell stories of answered prayer after answered prayer, but do you know what the temptation is now three years later? It is to coast, settle in, depend on our natural gifts, depend on the people showing up, the structures we have, depend on human power, and it will be subtle if we go down that road. And many of us won't even realize that we're going down that road. But over time, we will begin to rely more on the power of man rather than the power of God. And what will end up happening inevitably is that we will become a church of hypocrites. If we are trying to do God's work without God's power, we must, as the disciples had to learn here, we must come to see our own helplessness. Have you encountered your own helplessness to such a degree that it has brought you to your knees to plead with God for help? That's what the disciples needed, and friends, that's what we need this morning. I like what Ray Ortland said on this point. He says, It's rare to see a passion for prayer. He's talking about churches developing a passion for prayer. He says, It's rare. To see a passion for prayer as the essence of gospel ministry. But I also believe it's futile to try to work people up into prayer. It just doesn't get results beyond a surge of enthusiasm that soon wears off. Listen to this. I know of only one infallible way to get a church praying. And to keep it praying. For the power of God to come down... Here's what we need. We need to fail. We need to fail so badly and so obviously that we find out how much we really do trust ourselves rather than God. We need to be shocked by the collapse of our best methods. But what a blessing, catastrophic disaster is with all its misery and shame if it turns us back to God. Listen, there are times in our lives where we come to the very end of ourselves. We fail in our personal lives. We, we are humbled. And what God is teaching us is this, is that we don't have any power in and of ourselves. And the thing that will get us to pray as we ought to pray is to be brought low. Church, let's humble ourselves, be brought low before God, and to recognize we can do nothing apart from Christ. And only there on our knees in humility will we learn to pray. You want to be a praying church? Humble yourself. Recognize we have nothing. And Christ is great and glorious and generous. 
and let's look to Him. And may we never try like these disciples to do the work of God without the power of God. Let us be people who pray. Let's pray. So Lord, even now, if you will open eyes and soften hearts and clarify truth, Lord, there can be much fruit. Lord, if you don't do anything, Lord, nothing will happen. So Father, we call upon you in your sovereignty to awaken faith, to convict of sin, Lord, to humble us, to make us very lowly, and Lord, there to teach us how to pray. Help us to see that we can do nothing apart from you and develop lives of prayerfulness for your glory and for your purposes in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.